Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. On the line with us is Brendan O'Connor, a writer and journalist, contributor to The Nation magazine. His latest piece for thenation.com is basically a preview of what is to come after Trump leaves office. And I find this absolutely fascinating. Brendan-O'Connor.com, also his website. And you can tweet him at underscore G-R-E-N-D-A-N, Brendan. Brennan, uh, welcome to the program. What do you see coming after January 20th? After January 20th, I think that we are going to be in for a rough few years, longer than that even. I think that the political violence that was given particularly acute expression on January 6th will be a part of our political landscape for years to come, sometimes in such spectacular forms as during the siege of the Capitol and sometimes in more diffuse and localized forms. You know, it occurs to me that when that Trump train ran the Biden-Harris bus off the road in Texas, forcing them to cancel several rallies, and apparently they thought that Kamala Harris was actually on the bus. It was actually State Senator Wendy Davis. From that then to January 6th, and a lot of violence in between. I mean, you know, the Lafayette Square gassing and beating peaceful protesters for a photo op and, you know, bringing in the military helicopters and stuff. This is all a straight line. This is all essentially the same thing. There was no consequence suffered when they ran that Biden-Harris bus off the road. In fact, they got them to cancel two campaign rallies in Texas. There was no accountability for the men who seized the Michigan Capitol or invaded the Michigan Capitol. Obviously, the people who then a week or two later went a step farther to try to kidnap and and perhaps even murder Governor Gretchen Whitmer are being held accountable. But the seizing of the Michigan Capitol, no consequence. And so then they go to the U.S. Capitol thinking, hey, we've gotten away with it multiple times now. Why won't we get away with this? And even to this day, Jim Jordan, you know, the Republican from Ohio in Republican leadership of the House of Representatives saying, well, we still have concerns about the legitimacy of this election. You know, we we think that some Mm -hmm. things were done that were unconstitutional and illegal, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me that until there is a serious accounting at all levels from the president to these members of Congress, who in my mind are open seditionists, 
to the people on the street who are following their actions, who are committing crimes, until there's absolute accountability at all levels, this is going to continue to just get worse and worse and worse. Do you think I'm wrong? Or is that what you're suggesting? (laughs) That is in part what I'm suggesting. I actually think that the situation is probably even more bleak (laughs) than that insofar as while accountability for individual actors, particularly those at the upper echelons of law enforcement agencies, is absolutely necessary. And congressional Democrats, the White House, ought to take up investigations into the level of coordination, complicity, or deference that law enforcement showed to the rioters on Wednesday. These are institutional problems. These are structural problems. And so you can replace the leadership. You can even replace the rank and file. But the institutions of law enforcement are fundamentally and ideologically aligned with and resonating with these far-right street movements, even when they sometimes come into conflict and clash. That is an important development that needs to be that that needs to be interrogated further. But ultimately, you're right, these things do happen on a continuum, but at the individual level, while we do need to root out anyone who facilitated these acts of violence within law enforcement, ultimately the problem is going to require a root and stem more radical approach. For example, for example, I mean, I think that the critique of policing that was articulated during the uprisings over the summer, calling for defunding of police budgets and the reallocation of those budgets towards the American working class and the institutions that serve the working class is one important step towards preempting this kind of violence, taking away the resources from the movement that is building that is inspired by the Trump presidency, but extends far beyond the Trump presidency. Well, police, I mean, you know, just the very nature of policing. Hey, we're going to give you a big stick. You can beat people up with a gun. You can shoot people with. There'll be very little accountability for you. And uh, you can make judgment calls about who lives and dies or who gets a pass and who goes to jail. You know, it draws a certain type of personality, typically an authoritarian type of personality, and authoritarians tend to love fascism. Hitler had strong support among police departments across Germany early on. I don't know about the military specifically. It's been a long time since I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, Schirer's book. Pinochet in Chile, he had the support of police. So it shouldn't surprise us. But the nature of policing is always going to draw those kind of people into policing. So it seems to me that, A, obviously we need to find the people within our police departments who have become essentially traitors and expel them. But that, B, we need to restructure the way that our policing is done to go more toward Andy of Mayberry and less toward SWAT team. Am I making Mm. sense? Is that what you're suggesting? Community policing instead of, you know, remote policing from the streets with, you know, semi-automatic weapons? I do think if those are the two options, (laughs) the former is probably preferable. But I think that the abolitionist critique includes a rejection of those kinds of reformist approaches and is really asking us to think about how do we create a society that does not need these institutions to begin with, because you're right, 
the nature of policing is such that it will always create a center of gravity to attract. But if you're you trying know, to create a society that tendencies. doesn't need police, you're going to have to create a society that doesn't have any wounded or psychotic people in it. You're going to have to create a society where every child is wanted and loved and raised in a nurturing family. And even then you're going to have problems, you know, with the occasional person who is mentally ill anyway. I mean, it's I don't understand how you, you know, outside of a tribal context, a small community, and tribes, you know, police themselves. When they decided people were incorrigible, they would banish them, which was essentially a death penalty. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, like I said, this is calling for a very radical approach that otherwise we're just going to continue to see more and more of the same. And I think that that is the the nature of the moment that we're in calls for these kinds of approaches. Okay. Brendan O'Connor, if you want to read all about it, it's uh, it's titled A Preview of What's to Come After Trump Leaves over at TheNation.com. Brendan, thanks a lot for dropping by. Great talking with you. Thank you. We'll be right back here on the Tom Hartman Program. Stick around. We're reading today from The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer here on the Tom Hartman University Book Club. This is from the foreword by Shearer. He writes, Though I lived and worked in the Third Reich during the first half of its brief life, watching at first hand Adolf Hitler consolidate his power as dictator of a great but baffling nation and then lead it off to war and conquest. This personal experience would not have led me to attempt to write this book had there not occurred at the end of World War II, an event unique in history. This was the capture of most of the confidential archives of the German government and all its branches, including those of the Foreign Office, the Army and Navy, the National Socialist Party, and Heinrich Himmler's secret police. Never before, I believe, has such a vast treasure fallen into the hands of contemporary historians. Hitherto, the archives of a great state, even when it was defeated in war and its government overthrown by revolution, as happened to Germany and Russia in 1918, were preserved by it, and only those documents which served the interests of the subsequent ruling regime were ultimately published. The swift collapse of the Third Reich in the spring of 1945, however, resulted in the surrender not only of a vast bulk of its secret papers, but of other priceless materials, such as private diaries, highly secret speeches, conference reports and correspondence, and even transcripts of telephone conversations of the Nazi leaders tapped by a special office set up by Hermann Göring in the Air Ministry. General Franz Halder, for example, kept a voluminous diary jotted down in Gabelsberger shorthand not only from day to day, but from hour to hour throughout the day. It's a unique source of concise information for the period between August 14, 1939 and September 24, 1942, when he was chief of the army staff and in daily contact with Hitler and the other leaders of Nazi Germany. It is the most revealing of the German diaries, but there are others of great value, including those of Dr. Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda and Close Party Associate of Hitler, and of General Alfred Jodl, Chief of Operations of the High Command of the Armed Forces. That's the OKW. There are diaries of the OKW itself and of the Naval High Command. Indeed, the 60,000 files of the German Naval Archives, which were captured at Schloss Tambach near Coburg, contain practically all of the signals, ship's logs, diaries, memoranda, etc., of the German Navy from April 1945, when they were found, all the way back to 1868, when the modern German Navy was founded. The 485 tons of records 
of the German Foreign Office, captured by the U.S. First Army in various castles and mines in the Harz Mountains, just as they were about to be burned on orders from Berlin, cover not only the period of the Third Reich, but go back to the Weimar Republic, to the beginning of the Second Reich of Bismarck. For many years after the war, tons of Nazi documents laid sealed in a large U.S. Army warehouse in Alexandria, Virginia. Our government showing no interest in even opening the packing cases to see what documents of historical interest might lie within them. Finally, in 1955, 10 years after their capture, thanks to the initiative of the American Historical Association and the generosity of a couple of private foundations, the Alexandria Papers were opened and a pitifully small group of scholars with an inadequate staff and equipment went to work to sift through them and photograph them before the government, which is a great hurry in this matter, returned them to Germany. They proved a rich find. So did such documents as the partial stenographic record of 51 Fuhrer conferences on the daily military situation as seen and discussed in Hitler's headquarters, and the fuller text of the Nazi warlord's table talk with his old party cronies and secretaries during the war. The first of these was rescued from the charred remains of some of Hitler's papers at Berchtesgarten by an intelligence officer of the U.S. 101st Airborne Division, and the second was found among Martin Bormann's papers. And he goes through and he lists some more of the stuff. And he says, I have not read, of course, all of the staggering amount of documentation. It would be far beyond the power of any single individual. But I've worked my way through a considerable part of it, slowed down, as all toilers in this rich vineyard must be, by the lack of any suitable indexes. It is quite remarkable how little those of us who were stationed in Germany during the Nazi time, journalists and diplomats, really knew of what was going on behind the facade of the Third Reich. A totalitarian dictatorship, by its very nature, works in great secrecy and knows how to preserve that secrecy from the prying eyes of outsiders. It was easy enough to record and describe the bare, exciting, and often revolting events in the Third Reich. An Anschluss with Austria, the surrender of Chamberlain at Munich, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, the attacks on Poland, Scandinavia, the West, the Balkans and Russia, the horrors of the Nazi occupation and the concentration camps and the liquidation of the Jews. But the fateful decisions secretly made, the intrigues, the treachery, the motives, and the aberrations which led up to them, the parts played by the principal actors behind the scenes, the extent of the terror they exercised, and their technique of organizing it. All this and much more remained largely hidden from us until the secret German papers turned up. Some may think that it is much too early to try to write a history of the Third Reich, that such a task should be left to a later generation of writers to whom time has given perspective. I found this view especially prevalent in France when I went to do some research there. Nothing more recent than the Napoleonic error, I was told, should be tackled by writers of history. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. 
Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to Tom Hartman. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, what's up? My concern is what really um, the leaders of the Republican Party are doing, Kevin McCarthy specifically, saying we can't divide our country more. The country is as divided as it can get. What we need to do, and I think what I'm hearing and, and agreeing with you, is that these people have to be held accountable, starting with DJT at the very top. Mr. Trump needs right. to be handled in a, by law, by the laws. We're letting people get away with, like you said, terrorism, this attempted coup, police having... There are gangs that are supporting here in California. The sheriffs have their inside gangs that are racists, and they're known. These people are known. And we can't root it all out at once. It's not magic, but we have to speak about it. And the Republicans are denying it. Every time they say we have concerns, they are denying the problem. And they're sidestepping and trying to deflect and distract. This has always been their M.O., and they continue to do it. And their only concern is for themselves to get reelected and power, like you said, power and money. Now we're seeing huge corporations say, we're not giving you any money. You guys have done things that are so egregious we're pulling all of our support and we're never, we're, well, now, for now, yeah, we're not. Sadly, a lot of these corporations are saying we're not going to give money to Democrats either <laughs> going forward. I understand. We're, we're getting out yeah, of the that, politics yeah. business. But yeah. yeah, I get your point, John, and it's, it's well made. Thank you very much. Gregory in Ventura, California. Hey, Gregory, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. It has not been emphasized enough on the floor that if convicted in the Senate of impeachment, this monster cannot run again, and he should not be allowed right. to run again. He must be punished. Yes, I agree. And I think it's coming now, and I think it's inevitably coming. And what he's going to do over the next days now is everything he possibly can to create chaos and confusion and pain in America so that, oh, God only knows. I mean, he, I'm convinced he still thinks he can pull this thing out. That, that he can bring down the government or if enough of his goons show up and uh, take out the Capitol during the swearing in ceremony or something. I mean, his daughter has announced it. You know, uh, Ivanka has said that she'll be there. Um, I wonder if that's giving his, him pause, because I really think that one of the main reasons Trump said that I won't that he won't be there to his followers was by way of saying, hey, you know, you got some rocket propelled grenades. I realize that sounds 
extreme, but, you know, we just had last week people bringing pipe bombs and napalm and Molotov cocktails and guns into the United States Capitol, and they killed six people. So I, t- I, t- yeah, I totally I t- agree. You know, hyperbole has its then- limits these days. <laughs> Greg, thanks. Gregory, thanks a lot for the call. Nine years before the oligarchs of the South declared war against the North because they wanted to preserve slavery. In fact, they wanted to impose slavery in the North. Many of these guys that these monuments have been built to just came right out and said it. Nine years before that began, Frederick Douglass gave a speech saying, what to the slave is the 4th of July? a good and important question. It continues to be a question because slavery is still legal in the United States. The 13th Amendment said that slavery can only exist under the color of law. If somebody is is charged or convicted of a crime, then they can be held as a slave. And it's still going on in the United States. In fact, it's the main reason why we have more prisoners than any other country in the world, free labor. And then on top of that, we find that the police departments that get more 1033 equipment, they kill more people. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Max in Clackamas, Oregon. Hey, Max, what's up? You and I are on the same brainwave. You mentioned the 14th Amendment, which, of course, was passed in the wake of the Civil War. I think everybody should Google Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, along with the name Thaddeus Stevens, who mm-hmm. was a radical reconstruction after the Civil War. They called themselves radical Republicans, actually. Thaddeus Stevens was the leader of that band, and they were the heroes, in my mind. I think of him and John Brown are my favorite guys in American history. Yeah. I want to talk about the failure of Reconstruction, and Andrew Johnson was a Southerner who became president after Lincoln was shot in the head by a racist Southerner. And I think that it's time that we take down all the Confederate statues all over America. And I think it's time that we have legally and morally, we must maintain the higher ground. But we have to conduct dragnet, a nationwide sweep of people who are members, avowed members of terrorist organizations like Proud Boys, like the Three Percenters, like... Max, let me stop you right there. I was on the receiving end of that when I was a teenager in the 1960s when I was in SDS. And we were infiltrated by the FBI. We were infiltrated by the Michigan State Police. They tried to sabotage our operations. I was among a group of 13 people who got arrested on trumped up charges that really were, you know, hey, you guys are anti-war activists. I've been there. I've seen that. I was in the middle of it. I don't think that we should be saying, hey, you're a member of the Proud Boys, therefore you're a target. You do go after the people who are advocating violence. You do go after the people who are calling for breaking the law. You do go after the people who are inciting riot and sedition. But you don't, I don't think you can go after the organizations. There is still a Nazi party in the United States legally. There's still a communist party in the United States legally. Let's be very careful here. Any weapon that can be used against conservatives can also be used against progressives. When Germany lost the war, I mean, granted, Europe is a different place, but there are no statues to Adolf Hitler. Mein Kampf was outlawed for a long, long time. 
I mean, the Germans, when they lost the war, they made the people, the cities, the civilians, go to the camps and clean them up. Uh, the difference between you and SDS and, you know, Weatherman, you were in the right, maybe not with the pipe bombs or with Weatherman, but SDS was in the right. And it's time to embolden the people on the right and find the fascists that are, frankly, members of the military and of the, the, the police that Joe Scarborough said, open the freaking door for these guys, Tom. Yeah, well, I'm with you on that, Max. I'm with you. That's what I'm saying. Hold individuals responsible. Be careful of group identity stuff. I mean, that's what you know happened in the You're '60s with us. To the Tom Hartman program. It's also what happened in the '60s when J. Edgar Hoover decided he was going to take out Martin Luther King Jr. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. Rich in Indianapolis. Hey, Rich, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thank you so much. I wanted to bring up the possibility, and this is out of a, an abundance of caution, of trying to get to the orbital view of this thing and consider the possibility of a LIHOP operation. L I H O P. LIHOP. What's that? Let it happen on purpose. Oh. Yeah, the, okay. the idea that this wasn't... Um, oh, that's obviously what happened. Trump withheld the National Guard. The Secretary yeah, of Defense wouldn't return phone calls from the leadership of Congress. Oh, yes. Yes. And I That's obviously what that. happened. I haven't heard that framing. And we need to hmm. understand how, you know, this problem happens. And, you know, history repeats. I was... Can I do just a, one quote from Edmund Burke, please? If it's quick. It's super quick. There is no safety for honest men except by believing all possible evil of evil men. Spot on. Yeah, thank you, Rich. It's a good one. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. One of the things I, in terms of the articles of impeachment, as I understand that the article is uh, of incitement of insurrection, but uh, incitement is a charge that can have wiggle room in terms of what constitutes incitement and the way, uh, especially the way Republicans are talking, they can equivocate on almost anything. So the one thing that I would I would say is that it's undeniable, and this is what the last caller was referring to, is that if nothing else, regardless of whether Trump incited this this riot, he certainly failed to act to uphold his oath of office, which is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies, both foreign and domestic. Literally, the Constitution is in the United States Capitol, the actual document itself. And so, uh, you know, he, he by not acting, that's impeachable because that's a direct violation of his oath of office. That needs to be included. As for the, the way the Republicans are acting now or, or arguing on the floor, it seems like, you know, they've had their day in court, and they, they stack the courts. But when the courts don't uh, rule the way they like, then they say, oh, no, give us the, give us the uh, let's, let's, let's have a, a resolutions to reinvestigate the, the election. So they want to give the power back into their hands, you know. And then this other woman right. who, who says from Arizona. They want another Benghazi is what they want. Yeah, right. Yeah, they want to, let's, since the courts didn't decide in our favor, let's take the issue back into our hands, and we'll continue to obfuscate. And then this woman from Arizona, said, oh, let's move on. Well, I have I got a question for her. This was a violent crime. Would you tell the victims of and families of a violent crime 
I know it was a violent crime, but let's just move on for the for the sake of the peace, because we really don't want to upset the perpetrators because they might do it again. I mean, that's what she's really saying. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's obscene. It's not just absurd, Paul. It is obscene. It is beyond absurd. Paul, thank you for the call. Michael in Chicago. Hey, Michael. How are you, Tom? It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I'm fine. What's up? Okay, so I had some questions not directly related to what you're discussing today, but you've written uh, extensively on the Second Amendment. And I really think the answer to the conflicts are right there in the text. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 says that... um, let me see. The, the delegate of President Paul Mitchell will be held constitutionally, and only militias can be called forward by emergency. It also says that um, yeah, when when they referred to militias in the Second Amendment, they were talking about state militias. What today we call the the uh, uh, the National Guard, essentially. That's what they were talking about. There's no doubt about that. They they reference that, as you point out, in Article 1 of the Constitution as well. Right. So these people who run around who are self-declaring are by essence in violation. You can't. Yeah, no, and they're not malicious. They're they're just they're just armed gangs. That's you know everybody should be very clear about that. Uh, they like to call themselves malicious, and and you know it's sad that the media has picked that up. You know I even used that phrase for years on this program because it was just you know lazy shorthand. But these guys are not right. malicious, and everybody needs to make it clear. Michael, thank you for the call. Maria in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Maria, what's up? I just wanted to say. These Republicans right now, I'm watching you on Free Speech TV, and that one lady from Arizona that just wants to go forward, I feel like they're just catering to all these Trumpies. We don't want to upset them, whatever. What about people like myself, law-abiding citizens that are totally upset, totally? I mean, in order for me to heal, I need to say, I need to see some accountability, They have made the calculation, Maria, the Republicans broadly. It started in 1980 with the Reagan revolution when first they said, "Okay, we're going to flip the party. So all we're about. Yeah. All we're about is giant corporations and rich people. But there aren't enough giant corporations and rich people to get anybody elected. So they brought in the white racists from the South. They brought uh, actually Nixon did that with his southern strategy. Then then they brought in and then Reagan brought in the anti-abortion freaks as a way of pushing back on the women's movement. And he brought in the evangelicals. In fact, his outreach coordinator to the evangelical community was his vice president's son, George W. Bush. This is in the 1980s. They then reached out to the gun fanatics through and through the NRA and they cobbled together and they, they got people who hated gays. They got, you know, all you know, just all this whole disparate group, this kind of motley crew of single issue voters that the Republicans were reaching out to. And that was up until about 10, 15 years ago, enough to win an election. Well, now that's not enough to win an election. So now they're reaching out to the right wing conspiracy nuts, to the people that we used to call the crazy John Birchers. And every Republican now thinks that they need those crazy conspiracy nuts in order to get elected or to survive a primary. And they may be right, but that's what's that's what's driving this. Thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And we all need to be very, very clear about it. The Republican Party stands for nothing except wealth and power. 
Minuto. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Today we're reading from a book by Elizabeth Holtzman, one of the former U.S. congresswomen who sat on the committee that considered impeaching Richard Nixon. And this book is titled The Case for Impeaching Trump. Just came out. This is from the first chapter titled Impeachment. When Donald Trump's presidential election victory was announced in the early morning hours of November 9, 2016, like many Americans, I rubbed my eyes in disbelief and dismay. Two questions raced through my mind. What had become of America? that a man so unfit, so small-minded, so mean-spirited could be elected. A man whose ethnic and racial bigotry had set the stage for his presidential run when he called Mexicans rapists and made racist birther attacks on President Barack Obama, whose vulgarity and misogyny were laid bare in the Access Hollywood tape when he bragged about forcibly grabbing women by their genitals, whose performance at presidential debates showed him not only flagrantly ill-informed, but manifestly unwilling to get informed. My second question was how much harm this man would do to America as its 45th president. I have my answer now to the latter, less than two years after the election. President Trump has damaged American democracy far more than I would have guessed. He has refused to protect our system of free elections from foreign interference. He has relentlessly attacked the administration of justice, in particular the investigation into a possible conspiracy with Russia regarding the 2016 presidential election, putting himself above the rule of law. He has failed to separate his personal business from the countries, flaunting the Constitution's requirements. And he has violated the constitutional rights of the people in separating children from parents at the southwest border without due process of law. And to cover up these misdeeds, he has systematically lied to and assailed the press. These are great and dangerous offenses that the framers of our Constitution wanted to counteract and thwart. They provided a powerful remedy impeachment. Many tremble at the word, fearing how President Trump's supporters will react to an impeachment inquiry, worrying that it will only further polarize an already deeply divided nation. 
or that there will be not be enough votes in the Senate to convict him if the House of Representatives votes to impeach. Just calling for an inquiry will be viewed as a Democratic Party attack on the head of another party, a kind of coup d'etat. It's easy to find reasons to be anxious, but I'm not afraid. As a junior congresswoman, the youngest ever elected at that time, I served on the House Judiciary Committee that voted to impeach President Richard Nixon for the high crimes and misdemeanors he committed in connection with the Watergate cover-up and other matters. Through thorough, fair, and above all, bipartisan, the committee acted on solid evidence presented in televised hearings that riveted the nation, handing us the blueprint for how impeachment can be successfully pursued today. In our 225 years of constitutional democracy, the Nixon impeachment process has been proven to be the only presidential effort that worked. Though Nixon resigned, the only president ever to do so, two weeks after the committee's impeachment vote, he did so to avoid the certainty of being impeached and removed from office. We became a better nation for having held the president accountable. All of which raises two further questions. Should we be considering the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump? Will we again become a better nation by pursuing that option? To answer, we need to set aside President Trump's unremitting attacks on the environment, on our close allies, on the Affordable Care Act, and any disagreements we have over policy, as well as any personal animus, and simply ascertain whether he has engaged in the kind of egregious conduct that would meet the constitutional standards for impeachment and removal from office. This means we have to focus sharply on his potentially impeachable offenses. In doing so, we will find it useful to compare them, when possible, to similar offenses by President Nixon, found to be impeachable by the House Judiciary Committee in 1974. Here is a list of some of President Trump's potentially impeachable offenses developed as of this writing. A possible interference with or obstruction of the administration of justice and an abuse of power. On May 9, 2017, Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, who is investigating both his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and Russia's connections to the Trump campaign in connection with influencing the 2016 presidential election. Two days later, President Trump admitted to NBC's Lester Holt that Comey's firing had to do with that, quote, Russia thing. In other words, President Trump acknowledged that he was trying to shut down the FBI investigation into his own possible conspiracy with Russia. Flynn has since pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. The Comey firing uncannily echoes Nixon's firing of the special Watergate prosecutor for seeking highly damaging information about that president, a brazen defiance of the rule of law that triggered the start of impeachment proceedings against Nixon, a second possible interference with or obstruction of the administration of justice and an abuse of power. President Trump has persistently and publicly attacked those heading the Russia investigation, including special counsel Robert S. Mueller III and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and has repeatedly condemned Attorney General Jeff Sessions for recusing himself, suggesting that he wants to fire any and all of them in order to get control of the Russian investigation. He actually did give an order to fire Mueller. The case for impeaching Trump by Elizabeth Holtzman. Patrick in West Los Angeles. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Hey, Tommy, I appreciate it and hope you're doing well. What I've, what I've really come to understand is that keep talking about the fact that people had concerns that the election was was rigged or that there were problems or whatever with voting. But what they really have a problem with is the fact that they couldn't steal the election, that the pandemic, exactly. that expanded voting, that mail-in ballots 
didn't give them the opportunity to disenfranchise voters the way they have in the past. That's that's the crux of it. And the Democrats need to be saying this. I mean, these are words that should yeah. be coming out of their mouths. Yeah, you guys tried to, to mess with the post office so that mail-in ballots would be late. You guys shut down voting places in red states to make it harder for black and Hispanic neighborhoods, to make it harder for Democrats to vote. Yeah, I agree with you, Patrick. This is now, this should be an offensive by the Democrats, and instead they've turned into a defensive crouch, which is just nuts. Politically, it's insane. Jim Jordan, you know, uh, gymnasium Jim Jordan, this guy who deserves no respect from anybody whatsoever and probably should be you know, held accountable for involvement in the Ohio State sex scandal, at least called out for it. But, you know, the credibility of these guys is like, well, they have the credibility of a rock star on meth. They have no credibility because <laughs> the Democrats, the Democrats are not, they're not calling them out as continuous, ridiculous, uninhibited liars. That's all they are. I can make another point here very quickly. Two days ago, I saw Jake Tapper. He was interviewing Pat Toomey on on CNN. And, you know, they were talking about this whole thing. And if you noticed in seeing that, um, you know, Pat Toomey, he he acknowledges a couple things. But the first thing he comes out with is, well, you know, we had concerns about the election. And it appears that there were problems with it. And, And he's going, you know, he's going into this diatribe of the same stuff that Jim Jordan was talking about, more lies and the radical liberal agenda. Well, who are the radicals? Who are the who are the gun-toting, shotgun-toting, cousin-marrying, Confederate flag-wearing, cross-burning knuckle-draggers that are walking into the Capitol? Well, and, and it's not just that, that group, Patrick. Let's be careful about mm-hmm. you know generalizing because a lot of the people who have mm-hmm. been arrested at the Capitol are active-duty police officers or off-duty police officers, firefighters, lawyers, mm-hmm. politicians, elected officials. This uh, fascist movement, the modern day American fascist movement, is broad and deep. It's not just uneducated <clears throat> yahoos. Well, they sure, they sure appear to be deliberately ignorant of reality. And you're right, because I've seen plenty of smart people that consciously make ridiculous, stupid decisions. And apparently that's the case. That's what they continue to do. Yeah, these guys are chasing money and power. That's it. Patrick, yeah. I got to run, but thank you for the call cool. and uh, spot on. Stick around. It's the Tom Harbin program, the true people's media, the place where we dare to ask, is Walmart a person? And we dare to say, no. And we need to change the law, you know. We'll be right back. On the Science Revolution this week, we have Dr. Justin Frank, MD. He's here on the psychology of authoritarianism. We'll be taking a deep dive into the mind of authoritarianism, where and how the authoritarian mind begins. And Dr. Frank ties the mind of the authoritarian followers to Donald Trump and the whole mess there. Plus, the vaccine effort has failed. Can it be fixed or should we just do the one shot approach? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Abby in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Um, hey, Abby, what's up? Happy New Year to you. In the past, you've discussed the uh, Stingray devices that are deployed around big rallies and stuff like that. Also, the U.S. Yeah. Capitol has its own surveillance cameras covering every nook and cranny. I'm sure that, they, that, that the, if those cameras were on, I... And the third issue is the presidential iPhone. Barack Obama had to give up his Crackberry years ago, and Obama, or Trump got to keep his iPhone. If the CIA hasn't been monitoring it this entire time, it's a 
dereliction of duty, because I'm sure every other intelligence service in the world has been doing that. And if the stingrays are only for leftists, there's a problem with that. That's a dereliction of duty if they're not gathering. I mean, there should be oceans of, of evidence to work from, shouldn't there? Yeah, it used to amaze me because when we lived in Washington, D.C., Louise and I lived down at the waterfront and we did our show at the corner of K and 14th where we'd rented office space and turn it into a studio. And the straight line walk between those two places takes you right past the White House, you know, right down 14th Street around the White Mm -hmm. House and, you know, down to the waterfront. It's about a mile and a half walk. And I used to walk it every day. And every time I would get within a block or so of the White House, my phone would start going. It would actually start heating up, and, the, and you could watch the battery collapsing. And wow. I'm, I'm convinced, and, and later this was revealed, that there were stingrays operating, I assume, by our government around the White House. Now, it might have been stingrays being operated by spies to try to intercept White House calls. God only knows. Mm-hmm. But once, you know, once your cell phone thinks it's talking to a cell phone tower, but in fact it's talking to a stingray that's passing through, you can still get calls and text messages and get your email, but everything is passing through this third party, this, this man in the middle, as it were, on the stingray device. And therefore, they can download everything on your phone. And, yeah. you know, I'm convinced that day after day after day, as I walked by the White House, my phone was being downloaded. And later, you know, toward the toward the end of the time I was living in D.C., there were several stories published that said, yep, that's exactly what's going on. The question is, we don't know who owns the Stingray devices. There were over 30 of them that were found in different parts of Washington, D.C. alone. They're all over the country. Even if they didn't use the Stingrays, there's a wealth of data to be gathered from the uh, from the cell phone towers themselves. Right, of, and, of and from the surveillance cameras in the who? Capitol, which were, right, which were not seen. I'm, I'm guessing that that surveillance footage from the Capitol right now is what the Capitol Police, the Secret Service, and the FBI are going through. And we'll see where it all goes. Abby, thanks a lot for the call. Bradley in uh, Northport, Michigan. Hey, Bradley, what's up? What about the Capitol City Police that are still remaining? I question their loyalty. I figure a sizable percentage still have to be all in Trump people. And how can yeah, two of them have been suspended, one for taking selfies with rioters and the other for opening doors to let rioters into the Capitol building. Ten of them are being investigated because of posting on social media that was, uh, you know, that they were looking forward to this event, that kind of thing. I would be astonished if this investigation doesn't expand exponentially over the following weeks. Out of 2,000, how many do you think remain all in Trump people? What would you say? Hard to say. Hard to say. You know, the all in Trump people seem to dominate police departments around the United States, you know, probably well over half. And and I, you know, I don't I see no reason to think that the Capitol Police would be any different. So, uh, you know, we need to figure out what's going on. We our police departments have been infiltrated by a movement. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John. Hey, hi, Tom. Listen, I'm going to be real quick. Eisenhower had McCarthy. Trump's got his McCarthy. Now, if my family or myself was going to be murdered Trump's by a vicious got his mob, McCarthy. what are you talking about? I'm just talking about this coup is ongoing. And if my family was in danger and myself was in danger by a vicious mob, and I had the opportunity to rectify that situation, why would I blink an eye? Pence is in bed with them all. You know, I mean, these guys are just, you know, until the head of the snake is cut off, we will not see democracy flourish. 
Yeah, it's the oligarchy, stupid. You know, that should be the phrase. I'm with you. Thank you, John. Chuck, in Heritage, Pennsylvania. I just went over the bill, Act 77 of 2019, and I also just got a letter from Toomey, and they agree with you 100%. This lawsuit wasn't filed till after Trump lost the election. It had seven of the eight uh, sponsors on this bill were Republicans. Pennsylvania had General Assembly and House, they're both all Republicans. All of them were agreed to this. This was a bipartisan effort. What they're trying to do now is absolute lies. They need to look at what the act was said. The Republicans agreed with it, it all the way through till after the election. You're talking the legislation, the legislation to extend the date. The, during yeah, which they the could count legislation, even Toomey says, what the extension did nothing. The votes that they said were com- come in after weren't even counted. Uh, Senator Toomey even says they weren't counted. And even if they, they weren't counted. So what they're saying yeah, is, no, is I got absolute. it. I got it. And they changed the law. And Jim Jordan is saying they do it, did it unconstitutionally. Yeah, right. Uh, that's not what the courts said. That's where it ends. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So uh, this is uh, off uh, Ashaya Kumar's piece on uh, Daily Kos, by the way, if you want to track it down. It's titled, Off-Duty Cops Across the Country Identified as Participants in Capital Insurrection. Uh, According to Politico, a current Metro D.C. police officer shared a Facebook post in which he noted that off-duty officers and members of the military who participated in the riots flashed their badges and ID cards in an attempt to invade the Capitol building. More than 50 law enforcement officers were injured by these white supremacists. One of the black officers, quoting from the article here now, one of the black officers who requested to remain anonymous shared that off-duty officials not only flashed their badges, but tried to explain that this movement was supposed to help them. One of the black officers who was on duty, Capitol Police officers who was on duty when the riot happened, He said, one guy pulled out his badge and said, we're doing this for you. Another guy had his badge also. So I was like, you got to be kidding me. We were telling them to back up and go. This is a second officer, another uh, a second officer who was uh, there. He said, we were telling them to back up and get away and stop. And they're telling us that they're on our side, that they're doing this for us. And they're saying this as I'm getting punched in the face by one of them. That happened to a lot of us. We were getting pepper sprayed in the face by these protesters. I'm not even going to call them protesters, by these domestic terrorists, a Capitol Police officer told BuzzFeed News. NBC notes that the names of multiple members of the New York Fire Department have been turned over to the FBI. Members of the Sanford Fire Department in Florida are also being investigated. This is pretty rough stuff. And meanwhile, Pramila Jayapal, who has been a guest on this program many times, is now calling for members of Congress who refused to wear masks when they went into lockdown to be expelled because she was one of the members who also got COVID. Pramila Jayapal is now COVID positive. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is now COVID positive because the, the riot push them all into a room where Republicans, and I saw the video of this on TV last night, Steve Scalise, the guy who ran uh, for Congress in Louisiana, saying that he was David Duke without the hood. That was his slogan, right? Um, Steve Scalise was sitting there in this, in this chair just with a big old crap-eating grin on his face, 
um, you know, with a bunch of other Republicans. They were all men. Well, actually, there, were, there was one woman sitting at the table as well uh, without a mask. All of them sitting there without masks, surrounded by the rest, you know, by uh, Democrats and more cautious Republicans who were all wearing masks. And, and, and a, a, a congressional aide came in and tried to hand them surgical masks. Here, have some masks. And they were like, no, no, we don't need them. Thank you anyway. As they were infecting their fellow members, two members now have gotten this that we know of. A 75-year-old from, from uh, California and, and Pramila Jayapal. This is evil. I don't know how, how else you can describe this. This is just evil. Leslie in Wichita, Kansas. Hey, Leslie, what's up? For four years, we've been dealing with this Trump thing and a Senate that's not working or nothing. But Mitch McConnell has at least four to five hundred bills on his desk at one time. He wouldn't bring them up. He wouldn't debate them. And one of them was for voting protection in some form. We never saw that. And now this. These Republicans are concerned because I listen to that Jonah saying, and it's like concerned for what? They wouldn't bother to even. It's it's unbelievable. And one last yeah. thing, and anybody cares to listen, is Trump is a deceitful tongue, and that's right out of the Bible, and that describes him. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm, I'm with you, Leslie. Thank oh, you very yeah. much for the call. All right. Thank yeah. you. Uh, Kirk in uh, Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kirk, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. <clears throat> well, I, I, yes, I'm in Florida. And so it's part of central Florida. What I've noticed, because I drive a ton, a couple hundred miles a day, is that a lot of people have taken their Trump insignia off their vehicles and off their houses. Uh, but one of the things that I was bringing up as a topic is really the, the Confederate flag. Does the symbolism of the Confederate flag change to maybe even symbolize domestic terrorism? Because it seems to me at this point... Well, it certainly represented domestic terrorism 150 years ago. Good point. Yes. Uh, When people carry these things around on their truck, I always feel like this is a big truck with this uh, means to try to intimidate somebody. uh, Oh, yeah. And let's uh, keep in mind, Kirk, this is not the flag of the Confederacy. This is the battle flag. This was the army flag of the Confederacy, not the officials, the, you know, the national flag of the Confederacy. That was a completely different flag. This is the battle flag. This is the flag that was carried in battle. This is the, the flag of the traitors who rose up and tried to destroy the government of the United States. And ultimately, one of their numbers assassinated President Lincoln. That's the history of this flag. I am absolutely with you. It, it needs to be associated in everybody's mind with treason. Thank you, Kirk, for the call. Nolan in Minneapolis. Hey, Nolan, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. My question pertains to election reform once Biden takes office. And, you know, the idea that's been discussed on this program and it's been echoed by the GOP and that if we get some transparency and some reform done, that, you know, it's hyperbole, but they would never win an election again. I'm wondering, it doesn't seem, I'm wondering what the chance, what you think the chances are of him being able to kind of secure or achieve that in the first two years. Is he going to be Apparently, able to, uh, Nolan, those chances are good. And the reason why I say that is let me just share with you an email that I received uh, just a few hours ago. Um, this is from Adam Brandon. He is the president of FreedomWorks. 
And this is kind of long, but uh, it's not too long. But anyhow, he says, I apologize. Dear, dear Thomas, I apologize for the long email, but as a critical part of the FreedomWorks grassroots team, I wanted to explain to you some of the decisions about our 2021 programs that we're facing. With the left seizing total control of Washington, D.C., FreedomWorks has much work ahead of us to hold back the onslaught of power grabs Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi have in store for you and me. And he says, uh, I can't explain what a travesty that would be Uh, you know, basically if that happens, uh, especially with everything we're facing right now. Consider H.R. 1, the so-called For the People Act. It's the first bill the Democrats introduced in the new Congress. Better named the Gag Act, it's a massive crackdown on your freedoms designed to expand the radical left's raw power over you and me with draconian legislation that would, and then he has three bullet points, bullet point, impose sweeping new regulations on organizations like FreedomWorks to shut us up and cripple our effectiveness during election years. Now, what they're talking about there is H.R. 1 requires that these nonprofits that involve themselves in campaigns and elections disclose who their donors are, whether they're on the Republican side or the, or the Democratic side. So he says this is going to cripple their effectiveness. Number two, force grassroots organizations to publicly release the name of supporters, making them vulnerable to threats, intimidation, or worse from radical left-wing mobs. In other words, basically the same thing. Number three, increase regulation of America's online speech beyond paid advertising to include communications on groups or individuals' own websites and email messages. That's right, he writes, the Big Brother wants to monitor everything you and I say about the, political, about the jobs politicians are doing in Washington, D.C. Well, that's not true. Um, but what it is saying is that right now there are limits on untruthful advertising on television and radio. And those limits should be extended to social media as well. That's all it's saying. But, you know, hey, apparently FreedomWorks is fine with uh, untruthful. So and then he goes on for another couple of pages and says, stop the gag act and big government censorship schemes. And please click here to get a supporter ballot. And blah, right. blah, blah, blah. So if FreedomWorks, this is the group that brought us the Tea Party. This is the group that that was funded in large part by the Kochs. If they're hysterical right now about H.R. 1 and they right. are. And they must think that there's a good chance it's going to pass. That's the bottom line. That's what that I guess that that's the point that I wanted to make to you. Okay, uh, it just seemed like uh, I get there's a lot going on right now, but um, having all three, you know, uh, House, uh, Senate, and presidency, that seemed like something we should be able to get done and and really help going forward. So it didn't seem you like would hope. a lot of yeah, yeah. You would hope. All right. But they're going to do everything they can to prevent it from happening. And right now they're trying to create a grassroots uprising because, hey, oligarchs and billionaires don't like it when large quantities of Americans can vote because large quantities of Americans don't agree with the agenda of the oligarchs and the right wing billionaires. Uh, Nolan, thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Steve in Valparaiso, Indiana. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Uh, 
I would like to lay down a base of I reject the idea of left and right. Authoritarians are on both sides. You mentioned uh, so-called fascists and and, uh, authoritarian leaders, uh, but all you mentioned was the so-called, like I say, so-called right. But you never mentioned. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you, Steve. uh, You know, if you look at Maduro and Castro, Pol Pot, these guys all claimed communism. They all claimed. Health care for basically, all. They were just um, you can have authoritarianism on either side. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but I'm not seeing authoritarianism were... among the American left. Are you? <laughs> well, like I say, I reject left and right. It's in my mind. Well, you then you're living in a fantasy universe. I mean, you know, if, if you're going to if you're going to say that you can have authoritarians on the right and the left, if that's your stipulation and then you come along and then you follow that up by saying there's no such thing as right or left. You're talking gibberish, Steve. No, 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 no. My point is there is authoritarians and libertarians or liberals on the other end of the spectrum. All right? Basically, as a person, I don't want to be told what to do. No, libertarians can be very authoritarian. (laughs) Okay, explain. Ted Cruz is a libertarian. Uh, Rand Paul is a libertarian, and he wanted the election overturned. He's a total authoritarian. Authoritarians authoritarian? uh, believe if, in if rule by a... force, essentially. And that is, it seems to be right now, the sole province of these people who call themselves Republicans, which I would describe as the right. Just because you call a, an election corrupt, does that make you an authoritarian? They are using that charge to try to overturn elections. And yes, that does make them authoritarians because they're trying so, to overturn so every, every election. In is, fact, it makes them fascists in my mind. So in your fantasy world, every election is is pristine and good. Not a chance. Right? Well, but to how, try how to overturn if, if, an election if, that has been inspected to death. No, I mean, you've had well, over 60 your, court cases where the best evidence of any kind of election irregularities has been put before judges, the majority of whom were actually appointed by Donald Trump. And every single one of those judges has said, there's no there there. At that point, you need to say, OK, we had a clean election. And Republicans will not say that. They keep clinging to this lie. It's the big lie. It's the Donald Trump big lie that the reason he lost the election by more than 7 million votes was because of voter fraud. There was no voter fraud. There may have been some election fraud someplace. I'm not willing to completely rule that out, and I'm all in favor of looking into it. But the reason that the Republicans are saying, we're objecting to certifying Joe Biden because we want a commission and we want to have Benghazi-like hearings on this for the next five years is completely different. They're doing that to try to justify overturning elections in the United States. And that is authoritarian and fascistic. And that's the way that the Republican Party is rolling these days, Steve. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 